Section two of Ferns and Flowers in Their Haunts by Mabel Osgood Wright. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Reading by Matt Perard. Chapter two Along the Waterways. Time a year spends half his days among the waterways that begin afar off in quickening veins of moisture among the rocky hill woods thread their way unknown save for the tell-tale flowers that follow across many meadows and join forces to rush into the mill-pond above the forge after this they separate again and go their several ways as full-fledged streams time a year has chosen the most capricious among these for his following a waterway that changes its course every hundred yards or so now fairly broad and smooth though inhospitable to traffic like so many new england streams it suddenly drops rushing into a ravine cut by centuries of its passing where fissured rocks and potholes tell of its work then hesitating in pond-like complacency every little while it quiets to a usual mill stream for the eight miles course before the salt entering its blood it disappears among the marshes being drawn seaward with tide-water if you ask time of year what he is doing when you meet him wandering along the birches on river banks or sitting watching the sway of the white watered lily pads and the reflection of purple pickerel weed in some quiet nook well out of the current he will answer fishing at the same time taking a seasonable bait worm grasshopper or such like from his basket perfectly unconscious that your eyes are riveted perhaps on the flower of a rare pitcher plant that dangles from his frayed buttonhole telling of a long tramp through marshy fishless places where the ground is sphagnum covered the haunt of the strange insect killing sundews arums water plantains cranberries fringed orchids and other bog plants fishing why should he be doubted when rod and line and water all are there even if trout should be out of season he knows the run of every eel bass perch or pike but time o' year is no pot hunter either with rod or gun a morsel for his own need is all he ever takes of fin fur or feather no he is listening to the river voice that has been calling calling ever since it first moved on the face of seething waters to those that have the ears to hear he is watching day by day week by week year by year the procession that follows the waterways flower fern beast and bird and sometimes man from the greening of the first grass blade that tells of the dawn of spring until the footprints of mink and skunk in the snow alone point to where the stream lies ice covered to these humble followers the voice speaks through their necessity and guides them to the warm thinly crusted spring hole where they may drink time o year uses his fishing rod as a natural shield to ward off questioning a commonly understood excuse for days spent with nature in what otherwise would be called idleness have not many men naturalists and moralists both in all time tried like this childlike man to hide their nature ward and spiritual longings held too sacred for casual handling behind a slender fishing-rod was it the love of fish-catching or the voice that led walton from the linen-drapers or some say the ironmonger's shop to follow the waterways 
sportsmen still argue that he did not rank as a fisherman pure and simple for to him a reel was a confusing implement and he lacked the skill to fish upstream did he absorb from the daintily cooked trout that he has given such careful directions for preparing the cheerful spiritual philosophy that fitted him for the friendship of don and enabled him to interpret the life of herbert no it was the voice that taught him each year when spring has made her entry the errant streams retreating to the established waterways resume the discourse that frost ended by a finger touch these waterways are the most potent social influences of wild nature and not to know them is but half to learn the magician's alphabet a riverless land is a treeless birdless country where homesickness flourishes a motiveless waste where the wind whirls the sand until there are no paths and no boundaries do you realize that while boundless liberty is the great desire of the mind the feet unconsciously seek for trodden paths the waterways were the first paths cut by the magician through primeval rock and he still loves to linger about them be it april or arid august go out into the nearby waterways watch listen and follow from the waterways seen or invisible are the colors irradiated that paint the landscape and it does not take a lake or mighty river to exert a quickening influence over miles of lowlands either by spring overflow or by the penetration of sluggish outlets and minute tributaries the waterways work with a bold brush in flower painting and from earliest spring until late autumn the primary colors yellow blue and red flow from it the first strongly yellow flower is the marsh marigold which gilds the swamps before the dandelion holds its field of the cloth of gold in pastures at this season of overflows the near approach to stream and river is difficult but the marsh marigold can be seen afar and consequently is the first bright color of the landscape blue tinting to purple a royal color comes next new england may have rejected kings and heraldry long ago but she still wears freely every may fleur-de-lis azure in or on a green field for the large blue flag or iris versicolor flocks in crowds at every muddy river edge and spreads its regal mantle over the marshy fields it is a peerless flower seen in its haunt when the sun shines clear to look down among these violet-blue flowers, touched with white and gold, and veined with deep-cut purple, to watch the shadows of the deep green sword-shaped leaves quiver across them, while a transparent haze of color envelops the whole, is to confess the effect unpaintable. To pick the rigid stalks, topped by the crown-shaped petals, that droop and melt away after the fashion of all flowers of a day, is to acknowledge that this iris must surely be seen in its home, to be known in anything but outline. If many flowers of wood and field lose quality away from their surroundings, the herbaceous flowers of moist lands and waterways do so in far greater degree. The water lilies, however, of which three varieties can be found within a day's drive of Lone Town, may be safely gathered and floated in a deep bowl they will open and close for several successive days 
but the deep green and carmine-lined leaves that enhance their beauty curl up as soon as their under surface dries one day in late july i was searching the margin of the forge mill pond for lily pads to photograph having as yet found that morning only the half erect leaves of the yellow variety whose bumptious flowers look more like large leathery buttercups than lilies seeing on the opposite side of the pond a mass of the floating leaves i wanted i worked my way around to them only to find that they were ragged and torn that all the flowers and buds had been wrenched off evidently by a rake and that many plants were entirely uprooted and drifting ready to be washed away by the next shower a shout from a hickory grove just above gave clue to the destroyers a picnic was in progress of the sort that always brings disaster upon the flora and fauna of the region where it locates water lilies were being fastened around the men's straw hats and at the girls belts impartially while the buds with their long rubber-like stems were freely used as return balls to throw into the faces of the unwary trowels and jackknives in the hands of women were uprooting clumps of maidenhair and other equally fragile ferns to be stowed away under the seats of wagons that stood out in the sun while the men were engaged in trimming these same vehicles with whole bushes of the large-leaved laurel and yards of ground pine a little apart from the others two lads were ripping a foot-wide girdle from the trunk of a magnificent old silver birch the only one of its size for miles around and a well-known landmark as i was about to call out in protest i felt rather than saw a shadow cross the path before i could even turn time o year's voice said shh you can't do nothing they're on township land and township don't care you're wantin to take pond lilies i know some they won't find come and see whenever time o year said come and see an ecstatic expression of blended revelation and satisfaction beamed in his smile and he seemed to quiver all over with prophetic eagerness at the first step we disappeared safely and wholly from view into a group of button bushes that margined the pond on the upper side as we pushed our way a delicious fragrance came from overhead and i pulled down a branch to smell the feathery balls of bloom at nearer range from the time of wild grape flowers until the last purple cluster shrivels the richest fragrance centers about the waterways what does it smell like i queried half aloud partridge vine i reckon answered time o year rubbing the flowers between his fingers and then smelling of them as if to inhale the grade rather than the volume of the perfume surely it is like partridge vine i replied only as pervading as if bushels of the little cross-shaped white blooms were gathered in a mass good reason why the two are members of the same family i want to know said time o year delightedly it beats me how blood would tell now fountain's brown mare has a way of favoring her near front foot by lapping it over to other when she stands i never saw another do so and she is sound as a dollar too last fall a neighbor of his'n bought a colt up york state and pretty soon he noticed she overlapped in standing same as fountain's mare huh he thought it must be a catchin habit 
from pasturing alongside but sure enough come to find out the colt's mother and fountain's mare were whole sisters next a space of mud and tussock grass where picking the way was an absorbing task ended my guide's comparison between the passive and active development of heredity near here where the stream sometimes sluggishly meanders away from its channel i have at rare intervals found the curious golden club in may and the water arum in early june next we crossed a wet meadow inhabited by monkey flowers with delicate light purple blossoms together with the striking but unsatisfactory spikes of steeple bush that promise in the bud to be graceful sprays of bright pink spirea but end in faded fuzziness owing to the trick that so many spike flowers have of slowly blossoming in sections here also the fleshy stalks and dangling flowers of two jewel weeds grow thick rank and top-heavy a bit of bog hidden from the countryside by bush willows must be crossed by means of fallen trees which have lost their branches and are mouldering to peat time o' year paused and pointed to a sturdy tuft of red-veined green leaves it was a splendid pitcher plant or rather a group of them every pitcher-like leaf perfect water-filled and laden with drowned insects held for its nourishment i stood amazed and signed to my companion to know the reason of its presence so far from any haunt where i had ever found it thirty years ago it was full of em here he answered folks took em once in a while for curiosities or to try to grow em in fish globes and jars still they held their own until one time four or five years since a florist fellow from back of bridgeport came out here for a load of bog moss and spied em next thing i knew they were all rooted out except a couple of young ones and they're beginning to spread again you see another plant that taken from its haunt is a curiosity destined to come to an untimely end in a fish globe but at home an example of the mechanism which the magician can lend to plant life and a fine study in green and bronze tents backed as it was by burr reeds and cattail flags woods again still more completely hiding a chain of smaller ponds from the highway truly time o year's own waterway is infinitely varied on the sunny edge of these woods grew bushes of white swamp azalea the flowers almost past their prime giving a perfume more heavily sweet than that of the button bush this azalea being like its sister the pinkster flower a shrub its blossoms may be kept in water several days if they are picked before they fully expand which is the case with most of our native shrubs of dry or moist lands provided their stems are wrapped in wet cotton as soon as cut and an additional bit taken from the stalk when it is finally placed in water the first two ponds were close together only divided by an old dam which had long since fallen inward stone by stone and catching the spring drift of soil had turned to a flower-covered dyke the nearby margin of the lower pond was furrowed and the ground felt oozy to the tread for several yards above the water's edge the opposite bank was abrupt and rocky while under it the water held reflections of trees and the lazy clouds of the summer sky time o year halted spread out his hands as if giving a blessing and said briefly there's water lilies 
yes and a landscape fit to drive a flower photographer mad with the impossibility of keeping the merest fragment of it though an impressionist painter would have been filled with joy lilies gathered in circles where there was no current and sturdy purple pickerel weed came out as far from shore as it could wade to meet these floating islands but that which held the eye longest was a broad band of clear green foliage thickly feathered with soft white which margined the entire pond a metallic glint as of strands of copper wire showing here and there as if it bound the mass together the flower was the familiar lizard's tail with its delicately spiked white flowers and heart-shaped leaves both of which droop on being gathered the copper wire was daughter a leafless parasite with small white flowers and berries which lives upon the plants of waterways in the hand neither plant was of conspicuous appearance but growing in rank luxuriance in such a haunt the effect was almost tropical i know of no other like bit of picturesqueness hereabout except where at the end of a long drive across country i once came upon the pale yellow native lotus growing in such rich profusion in lake wakabuck that a boat could barely push its way among the tangled pads of leaves buds flowers and seed pods oddly shaped like the nozzle of a watering pot it was a sight to make one for the time forget new england's rocky hills and cobble-strewn pastures but even among these much beauty goes a-begging and is passed by unheeded because it is too near home to be thought worth seeking out and cherishing people make coaching tours the country over for love of scenery who do not know of the nearby flower landscapes or of the waterways that surround their very homes except as drinking places for the cattle in the pastures come up to the other pond said time of year breaking my reverie at the right moment for the picnickers whom we had left behind were jangling a dinner bell to collect their scattered company and the howls and catcalls that sounded by way of response were jarring if they'd seen your trick box nothing would have saved you you'd have had to take em all sure unless you went and sat in the middle of the pond chuckled time o year wickedly laughing as he saw me huddle my camera up tight in its waterproof cover at the bare thought the other ponds different deeper steeper banks more bushed up i always thought this one was just a low meadow not so long ago the bottom's soft and there isn't a hole in it deep enough to hold a two-pound pickerel kingfishers don't like to dive in it neither and that's a sure sign of shallow water and soft bottom but green herons like it here and quacks and great blue cranes but they're more in the froggin line of business a footpath coming from the woods followed the margin of the second pond at the distance of a yard or so winding and curving around the miniature bays and inlets until ten feet of headway meant thirty of meanderings this is one of the illusions by which the waterways beguile us into thinking as we follow the voice that travels on before that we are covering vast areas whereas after wandering about a whole morning discovering each moment new treasures of the eye and ear we find that we have progressed only a mile or so measuring by the direction of the straight high road between the path and the pond edge shot up stiff plants of the arrowhead with their arum-like leaves and spikes of fragile white tripetaled flowers 
quite as pleasing to the eye as many of the smaller orchids. These also are flowers to rejoice over when seen in their perfection, with clear water for a background, and splendid dragonflies darting over them. But when gathered, soon are but sad little wrecks, with curled blackened leaves and drooping blossoms, like so many of the frailer flowers of the waterways, literally melting to tears on leaving home. All about this upper pond crowded a half-woody growth, which arched its long, slender branches over the water until they trailed in it, after the fashion of vines. Upon the wand-like stems of the nearby shrubs I could see, set in the axles of the leaves, the groups of small pink-purple flowers, whose thin, narrow petals and long stamens gave the stalks a rosy, fringed appearance. Where a vigorous stalk bent low enough to reach the mud beneath the water, a mass of roots could be seen spreading from it, and grasping a firm hold, while the stem of a new plant started upward from these roots. This slender-stemmed shrub was the swamp loosestrife, or willow herb, though walking loosestrife would, I think, be a rather better name for it, as it strides about our Connecticut ponds and riverbanks with such rapidity that it surely wears the seven-league boots of plantland. A common plant? Yes, for our own home mill pond is hedged with it, though never had I found a pond so completely possessed by it as this. But how few there are who seem to know it by name, or to remember ever having seen it in its haunts. Of the many guides to flowers, which, during the past few years, have held out their hands to aid and instruct the novice, which one has mentioned it? Yet, for all this, it is not a landscape flower that may be overlooked, even though the value is more in the leaf than in the bloom. From spring to midsummer, its foliage wears successively three shades of green, ranging from sap through clear emerald to verd antique. Its blossoming time runs all through July and August, and even before its flowers drop away, a mellow tint overspreads the foliage. Yellow, pink, and deep maroon all flicker, and come and go among the bending withes, until, as summer passes, the pond edges are wreathed in the same colors of flame that samphire spreads over the salt marshes. Low bush blackberries bring to the rocky pastures sumacs to the hillsides and virginia creeper festooning over old walls trails by the wayside the sun was very bright upon the water and as time o year turned toward the wood again to rest his dazzled eyes the third perfume of the day played with my nostrils a sort of blending of the odors of buttonbush and swamp azalea yet more clearly defined and spicy than either and bearing the suggestion of damp leaves with it Another whiff, and my nose decided what the perfume was. Clethra, or white alder, as it is often called, though nowhere could my eyes discover it. A lot of sweet pepper bushes on ahead, said Time o' Year, who was in front of me. Fine ones, too. Well flowered and in a likely spot. Not too much sun, nor too much damp, and screened from the northwest wind, which does a lot of harm. Driving along the ponds and rivers some springs, after things have started, I guess you'll find pepperbush just right this time of year. Clethra, white alder or sweet pepperbush, so called from seed pods that resemble peppercorns. The flower is one and the same. No name, however invented, could half describe the suggestive fragrance, 
and no chemist could ever counterfeit it. Clethra is too often a bush defaced by much dead wood and shabby seed pods, but this group was of even, young, fresh growth, coming from old stumps, while the flower sprays rose erect above the leaves, in shape like long candle flame. A horse needed the picnic ground, and Nell, tethered down the highway, answered and added an impatient whinny on her own account. So once again I parted company with Time o' Year, who stood a moment smiling at me as I packed away my plate holders safe from light. Then, picking up his eternal fishing rod from some mysterious hiding place, he trudged off up the pond path, whistling softly to himself in a startled sort of way, like a bird that, after the silent time, tries his voice in autumn and seems surprised at its sound. Nell whinnied again when she caught sight of me, this time contentedly tossing her head to signify that it was time to change bit and bridle for her lunch bag. At the same instant, my day's companion, who, owing to a dainty gown and flowery hat, had preferred not to risk damage by thorn and briar, and had decided to stay in the shade reading the Kentucky Cardinal. I would not allow her a less admirable book for the day's outing. Turned the last leaf, leaned back against the bank of hay-scented ferns, and stretching luxuriously, said, It has been a simply perfect morning, but... Oh, how hungry I am! Telling Nellie to be patient a little longer, we drove down the road a mile or so, until we joined the river again, almost opposite Time o' Year's cabin. Here the way was narrow, well shaded, and cut like a step in the edge of a wall of rocky woodland, which rose eastward of the river valley. Rocks also separated the road from the river, which at this point rushed along its rock bed full of potholes, twenty feet below. Between road and river were some old buildings, which in their day had been grist, saw, and cider mills. Two were so crumbled that vines grew through the floors, and the phoebus nests of many generations strewed the beams. The third, the cider mill, still bore traces of use. Moldy straw and dried apple skins hung from the clumsy press, while the rude platform under the vines and trees in full view of the river where tree bridge spanned it offered an ideal resting place so there we halted a flowering clematis vine climbed up from the bank by way of some tall alders and leaning over i saw at the same glance a gorgeous company of cardinal flowers doubled by their reflection in the water a rock had protected their roots from freshets, and they stood there like a company of silent torch-bearers, their lights but newly lit, and likely to burn a month or more before extinguishment, save only this difference, that a pine-knot, torch, or a candle burns from the top downward, while the flower-flame creeps upward and shows its last gleam from the stalk's top. When the cardinal flower grows among the tangles of low meadows or by muddy ponds, where it is meshed by tear-thumb, goose-grass, daughter, or the persistent hog-peanut, we see its wonderful color, but lose its identity of form. Here, backgrounded by clear-cut rock, it stood out in perfect and untroubled stateliness. Two of its companions along the waterways, which form with it a sort of floral tricolor, are also seen in greater beauty when they grow massed along the course of running streams, 
than where a profusion of rank marsh growth overpowers them these are the flesh-white turtle-head and the purple closed gentian flower of mystery that keeps its lips tight-closed upon whatever secrets it possesses the turtle-head was already in bloom for it usually keeps pace with the cardinal flower the closed gentian not showing its intensely opaque purple flowers until middle august loses them before its companions are out of bloom farther down the road where a lane turns off over a low-set bridge into a wood lot there flowers each year a patch of closed gentian such as one seldom sees now within reach of travelled roads exactly where it is i will not tell though i may lead you there some day i guard its haunt as time o year guards his arbutus within a space of a scant dozen feet deep rooted in wet soil and screened from the lane by the end of the bridge the straight stalks of the closed gentian so overgrown by good nourishment as to be almost vine-like can be counted by the dozens this flower is of perennial habit of growth and therefore once established is more true to its haunts than the sun-loving blue fringed gentian which is an annual dependent upon seed alone for its continuance in the place where we find it and sought with eagerness from this very elusiveness the locusts droned away nell nodded into her feed-bag and we sat silently watching the bees that were helping themselves to a peach that was beyond our capacity and the ants who came on sweet errands and who had by their passing year by year to and fro from the press worn a little track in the soft boards do cover up that ant walk with a branch or something said flower hat i don't think i like to watch ants they are so industrious and virtuous that on a day like this they seem a sort of moral reproach to one oh look at that moment a yellow swallowtail butterfly drove the bee from the peach while a cloud of the brick-red milkweed monarchs hovered over a jungle of their favorite flowers just beyond the mill the sun lay many hours to the west of noon before we left our shelter i sat leaning back against the one-time straw rack and dreamily wove together thoughts of all the other lovely outdoor days that were brought back by the picture now before me the river voice murmured clearly as it passed between the rocks and i idly wondered how long it would take the current now flowing by in cool shade to reach and spread among the open marshes near the sea tropical gardens which at that season and hour would give off visible and blinding rays of heat my companions were both sleeping how strangely sleep relaxes characteristics that that will-power gives to the faces both of man and of beast flower hat was but no i'll not say it she may read this which nell will hardly do nell who on the road would pass for ten instead of twenty had shaken off her feet-bag and now stood with closed eyes her somewhat whiskery chin dropped in a foolish way partly showing her lower teeth while her ears usually so pert and mobile had lost nerve and direction so that she appeared to be in the last of the seven ages of a horse sans everything but sleep i laughed aloud a flowery hat was straightened and a far-away voice said oh i'm wide awake 
I've heard every word you said, but I'm too comfortable to answer. Which statement, as I had not spoken, was perfectly true. Then, once more, my thoughts joined with the river and followed it down to its sea gardens. The day before, I had looked for flowers in the marshes threaded by hybrid watercourses, half creek, half river, where the salt relish stimulates other conditions of growth and different colorings. It had been a good morning for going to the marshlands. The sky was overcast, the wind, fresh and easterly, had driven the mosquitoes from the wet-bottomed salt meadows back to the bracken thickets. The tide was low, so that the feathery edging of lilac sea lavender that bounded the salt haying grounds was reachable. Where the coarse grass was short, and the sunken tide-water had left a sort of metallic luster on the mud, grew the dwarfed seaside gerardia, its flowers purple-pink, its shape a minute counterpart of its sisters of wood and upland meadows, there, too, growing in rosettes, the leaves coming from a central root, blushed the rose-pink, wheel-shaped flowers of the American century, or sabatia, so bright in hue that the nearby salt-marsh fleabane looked dingy and overblown by contrast, while, acting as a foil to both of these, the stiff, inflated, leafless stems of glasswort covered the ground with the translucent green such as we find in seaweeds. The course of every tide-ditch was outlined by cattail flags, rich with their brown batons, which seemed to give them jurisdiction in the world of reeds. But the rose-mallow is, in summer, the landscape flower of the marshes, inseparable from the scene from late July until early autumn days give precedence to yellows and purples, preparing the eye for autumn leaf colors. All along the eastern coast, wherever water courses, this mallow, often higher than the height of the tallest man, rears its hollow stems from a perennial rootstock and opens its flowers wide as a hand's breadth. They range in color, like the pink azalea, from blush white through deep rose to almost crimson in the unopened bud. Far up rivers and by inland lakes, wherever a salty flavor tempts it, the mallow flourishes, and though it is water-loving, if a place where it is firmly fixed is drained and the conditions changed, it will still live bravely on, though smaller and paler. In the hand, rose mallow is a coarse flower, perfect in color only in its first morning of blooming. Its leaves are rough and quick to lose their shape, and every stalk is made ragged by faded blooms and rough seed pods. As it grows, each tint of color, from palest to deepest, reflects among the strong leaf shadows, and the whole, thrown in relief by a background of deep green reeds, is something to seek and gaze upon. Then we may keep its color memory alone, though its outlines may be treasured with the aid of the camera's eye for, like the field of fleur-de-lis, it is unpaintable by human hands. Are we not overbold when we try to reproduce in detail by direct color that perfection of flower beauty born of a combination of its natural tint, atmosphere, reflections, and the veiling influence of the vision that transmit it to the brain? Those who do not really know a flower in its home, as one knows the varying expressions of the eyes of a beloved one, clamor for a colored counterpart, no matter how crude. 
but those who really know prefer the black and white suggestion of the scene and leave the rest to memory to paint the wild flowers as their lovers see them growing or a child's face as its mother knows it requires the gift of heaven-born genius the sultriness left the air and a refreshing breeze that blew down the river glen from the northwest suggested a thunder shower back among the hills flower hat sprang up and danced a few jig steps to wake up her feet she said which had been asleep though she had not nell awoke with a snort and then sneezed we hastened to collect our traps and pack them away after watering the pony somewhat inefficiently with a tin box as a pail which being shallow necessitated eight trips down to the river why did we not take the mare to the water instead of the reverse because at my last attempt presuming on the privileges allowed her years nell on being unharnessed had jerked the bridle from my hands taken a long and to herself satisfactory roll in the water and crossed to the other side i wonder who lived there queried flower hat looking at the little house that stood in the narrow strip of land opposite the mill between road and rocks the house was evidently abandoned for the gate was nailed up but a worn grindstone stood by the well and there was a straggling mass of hardy old-fashioned flowers strayed evidently from a bit of garden at the south side as i passed unable to answer the question time o year came along on his homeward way his cabin being a little farther on reading our thoughts he answered them saying the keeler folks lived here old lady died it must have been three years back old man last spring all their folks gone long ago nothing left but the posies to mind the old place and soon that'll shake down and then the posies'll have it all to themselves but i reckon she'd a liked it to be that way she was always very private there's been many a house in lone town you'd never a dreamed was there only for the posies they're always the last to leave end of chapter two